0: This is The Guardian. Today, is it time to invest in a bunker for the apocalypse? In 1,000 feet, turn left. So, we're driving down some windy country roads. There are trees on either side and there's just a mist over the horizon, which seems quite fitting when we're going on this mystery journey. My producer Rose and I had travelled deep into the Essex countryside. After about an hour of driving, I could see the dense foliage of the woods in orange, brown and red starting to break up and the horizon opening up to us, onto green fields. The car's stopping and we're getting out. Okay. We walk down a dirt track and pass an old wooden hut on stilts, the kind that someone might have used to keep watch from. There's a sign up ahead (laughs) that says, welcome, secret bunker. (laughs) (laughs) All right, okay, in we go. Into a patch of woodland a few metres on, and then we see this brown stone building, and there's a man standing outside it. He's got grey, wiry hair, and has a pair of glasses hanging around his neck on a string. His hands are in his pockets as he walks towards us. Hello. Good morning. I'm Hannah.
1: Nice to meet you. Nice
0: to meet you. Welcome to
1: the Kelverton Hatch, Secret Nuclear Bunker.
0: Mike Parrish is from a farming family. And in the 1950s, his granddad got approached by the government. They were going to take over 25 acres of his land. They'd dig deep beneath it and create a space that could be safe in the event of a nuclear attack during the Cold War.
1: Well, you're outside an innocuous-looking bungalow, which was designed to look like a farmhouse, so the Russians wouldn't know it was here.
0: So are we going to have a look inside? Let's go. Mike wrenches open a metal door and leads us through into a tunnel that stretches on further than my eyes can see. Gosh, right, okay. It feels quite eerie down here. It's very gloomy, so we just have these few neon strip lights on the ceiling. This was designated as the London bunker, the place where top civil servants and perhaps even the prime minister could be evacuated to up to 600 people would be able to live in it.
1: So these are the uh, blast doors, which we're just going to go through. And as you can see, they're quite big, and they, uh, they do when they're shut, make quite a, um, a definitive... noise.
0: That was quite terrifying. Um, <laughs> have we got a food supply in here in case we can never get those doors open again? We do indeed. This bunker was one of more than 1,000 built across the country during the Cold War and is one of only a few left in the UK in its original state. But there's evidence that with a war ongoing in Europe and the threat of the climate crisis, more people are now looking to secure a safe spot in underground spaces like this one. People made serious requests that people, they wanted to be down here. out
1: from America and all sorts of places, wanting to know if they could have a spot. Absolutely, since Ukraine, yes.
0: Wow. And as Mike tells me, people are prepared to pay for that.
1: I've got the system now, so I said, yes, if you've got 500,000 in liquid assets, come and have a serious chat with me.
0: From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the people buying up bunkers to prepare for the end of times. Bradley Garrett, you're the author of the book Bunker Preparing for the End Times. And you've also written on this cheerful subject for The Guardian. I know you've interviewed the CEOs of companies that are building and selling bunker spaces. What have they told you about the amount of interest they're getting from people at the moment?
2: Interest is surging. I mean, every time I call them, they tell me sales are up a hundred percent, sales are up a thousand percent. I mean, it just it. They're good salespeople. Well, of course, in my book, I call them the dread merchants because it, it's it's the it's in their interest to stoke fears and to make you feel that the world is falling apart. You trust your home to keep your family safe, but there are many threats that don't stop at locked doors and brick walls. Your house isn't made to withstand uncertain dangers like natural disasters, home invasion, or social unrest. To make sure that you're aware that they can offer you a life assurance solution, as one of them described it to me. The rising as bunkers. They're the safest, longest lasting, most dependable on the market. But I spoke to Gary Lynch, the CEO of... The Rising S Company in Texas, they build these backyard bunkers. They're sort of fabricated steel. They look a bit like Lego. You can kind of attach different rectangular pieces and bury them in your backyard. And he told me that in the past month, he would have normally fielded like 100 inquiries, but he had over 3,000. And it all was due to anxieties around the pandemic, civil unrest, climate change.
0: So those are a form of DIY bunkers, if you like, ones that you can have in your backyard. But then there are also existing bunkers, like the one that I visited in Essex, some of which are coming up onto the market. Where are those in the US and, and how much are people willing to pay to have a space in them?
2: So let's start at the top. I'll give you the most expensive bunker that I went to called the Survival Condo, located in the middle of Kansas, a couple hours drive from any center of reasonable population (laughs) that's being built by a property developer named Larry Hall. He used to work for the Department of Defense building bunkers.
3: Those doors that we just came in through weigh eight tons each. They're uh, armored steel filled with concrete.
2: He bought this missile silo from the government for almost nothing, had to pump a bunch of water out of it, and then built a 15-story subterranean condominium complex underground basically a, a subterranean skyscraper and they the condos sell for one and a half million for a half floor or three million for a full floor and I do know one person that spent five million on a two-story condo inside there wow um but what was re- what was really <laughs> weird to me is that he told me that most of the people who had bought space in it had never been there at all they'd never seen it
0: who are these people then who are buying these bunkers?
2: On the extreme end doctors dentists hedge fund managers CEOs of corporations bankers I mean you I mean you know you know who has this kind of money
0: I'm thinking about celebrities might quite want access to a bunker do we know of any celebrities who who might have purchased one
2: No oh, yeah so many people have them Tom Cruise has a bunker uh, Donald Trump, of course, famously has a bunker under Mar-a-Lago that was built during the Cold War by the previous owner of the property. People who have that level of, of wealth are seeing these days the bunker as a necessity. But I, I did go to facilities that were squarely aimed at the middle class as well. Ah. Places where you could buy a bunker for, say, 25,000 pounds And, you know, I found there a lot of people working in IT, plumbers, mechanics, people who told me that they had saved up some money over the past decade or so. And rather than buying a boat or a caravan or something, they decided the bunker was the better investment. And often those people would use them as vacation homes.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, they would bring their families out and maybe have their families help them, you know, do some construction on the bunker, set up the solar panels or build out the floor or whatever. And explained to them that this was kind of their insurance policy if everything had gone wrong.
0: And the bunker you travelled out to in rural Kansas, what was it like there?
2: When I arrived there, there wasn't much to see other than a wind turbine, a sort of mound of grass that was emerging out of the plains, and a concrete pillbox on the top of that, which inevitably had a, a giant weapon in it when I pulled up to the gate, the security guard rolled the gate open for me. Obviously, he was in camos and armed, looking very menacing. So they have a
0: permanent security guard.
2: Yeah, stationed there 24 hours a day. The security team, there's a whole team of them who have these kind of incredible four-wheel drive armored vehicles, are tasked not only with defending the property, but also rescuing residents. So if residents get trapped somewhere else, the security team will go and find them and get them out of a situation.
0: Wow. Okay. And then what was it like then actually inside?
3: They're pretty lush. All right. So I'll show you a full floor unit. This is a three bedroom, two bath unit and they have nine foot ceilings. You see, we've got all these uh, high-end uh, stainless steel appliances, with a jacuzzi tub and a shower with the side
2: jets. You know, they're nice places to live. They've got window screens on the wall, 4k screens installed vertically, with a feed that's being piped in from cameras from the outside, so it gives you a sense of being outside.
3: Out of the ...and you see the birds flying and the sunset coming up and the rain and the weather changing. That's the input your brain is used to.
2: The bunker has communal facilities as well, a rock climbing wall, a gym, a library a cinema, a shooting range.
3: You can uh, come down here and shoot everything from handguns up to three hundred eight caliber sniper rifles in here. So under proper supervision. Wow. Okay.
2: You know, it's it's a pretty extravagant facility.
0: And there's a supermarket in there. What was on the shelves? Was it all, like, dehydrated space
2: foods? The supermarket is basically filled with... They're called number 10 cans. Like, if you imagine a, a can of soup on your shelf it's kind of 10 times the size of that and there are racks of number 10 cans full of all sorts of food soup rice oatmeal beans but he also has down there a barista level coffee machine he's raising tilapia he's growing vegetables in the aquaponics facility so the imagination is really once you get this bunker into full swing you walk into this grocery store and and you buy fresh fish you buy fresh vegetables And then you can go down to the bar and one of the residents donated 10,000 bottles of wine from their franchise restaurants.
0: I've seen some footage and pictures of the other luxury bunkers. and I've got to say, the decor is very bad. There's a lot of dark wood veneer, kind of fake marble, very gloomy lighting. Why aren't they more stylish? I
2: I don't know. I, I feel like there's a kind of Southern California architectural aesthetic that is emulating something from Tuscany that's being translated into the underground, but badly. I mean, the lighting I can speak to in particular, obviously lighting underground is really hard to deal with. You can't put glass into these bunkers. You can't have natural light in the bunkers at all. So what I've seen a lot of bunker builders doing is they're buying into these lighting systems that reproduce the circadian rhythm. So essentially, when the sun sun rises and sets on the outside, the lighting system will emulate that. And some of them even have bulbs that move inside the ceiling so that you feel like the sun is passing overhead. And all of this is being done essentially to manipulate your psychology so that if you are trapped in this bunker for, let's say, a year, you know, every accommodation has been put in place to make sure that you feel like Things are normal. And and Larry at Survival Condo, he described that to me constantly. He said, you know, these, these things that people see as, as luxury are not luxury, they're necessity. Because if anyone cracks while we're all down here together, then it's a communal problem, right? So it's in everyone's interest to make sure that everyone is is content. And that means keeping them occupied, keeping them distracted and making sure that everyone knows who's in charge.
0: Yes, I'm imagining a sort of Lord of the Flies situation with, well, with yeah. <laughs> people who are extremely low on vitamin D. Um, how long would people envisage being able to stay in there then? How, how good are the supplies?
2: Larry Hall has told me that he can, he can keep 60 people down there for five years safely. And that is the longest period of time that I've heard anyone quote, including governments. And frankly, I feel like even though you might be able to do it technically, socially, it's not going to work. To my mind, a year is probably the most people could stand. I mean, you remember the beginning of the pandemic, three, three weeks into to isolation, I was like, I'm going for a drive. <laughs> right? People aren't, aren't built to stay in one place like that. And particularly when you've got dozens of people in one facility, people are going to get antsy, they're going to start arguing. I think you're going to have a lot of social friction. There are places in the world, like Singapore, for instance, where they're thinking seriously about what it takes to make life underground sustainable. They're thinking about it in terms of the climate crisis, but also just in terms of population density and land scarcity
0: about a quarter of an underground tunnel...
2: You may have heard or read about it. The way forward for our space scarce sunny island...
1: ...together with building owners and developers, we can see what more can be done underground... ...is down into the underground. In 2019, the Urban Redevelopment Authority attempted to create more space for us by coming up with an underground
2: master plan. So they're thinking about how to keep people uh, psychologically healthy how to make sure that the social systems that we would expect and appreciate on the surface are available subsurface. And interestingly, they're they're looking to some of the studies from the Cold War, where they they locked people underground for 14 days to see how they would withstand a, a nuclear fallout situation. They're looking to those studies to understand how to better build those subterranean spaces.
1: So we're now going up another flight of stairs to the top floor.
0: Back in the bunker in Essex, I'd started to picture what that subterranean life might actually be like. Well, we've been walking around for about 25, 30 minutes now, and it's really quite extensive. You can imagine hundreds of people being able to be down here fairly
1: comfortably. Uh, It wouldn't be. (laughs) If you've got, if you had the latterly, they whittled the number down to about 450. If you have a third of those asleep at any time, you've still got an awful lot of people who are working and making a noise and getting on each other's wick. Yeah. Uh, It would be not very pleasant at all.
0: Added to that, water would be at a premium, so you wouldn't be able to take a shower or flush the loo. Okay, so... Let's have a look at these toilets then. It's almost like if you've ever been on a caravan holiday, uh, you know the chemical toilets that you'd get in there that don't flush. This is what this network would be run on, just these chemical toilets essentially, that everybody's effluent would be dumped into one pot.
1: And then only flushed once, rather than every time anybody went. You're not washing. You're not wasting water on anything at all. Water is life. That's all you've got.
0: I wonder if you'd just stop smelling the smell after a while. I think you do. Bradley, you've stayed overnight in some of these bunkers, haven't you? What was that experience like?
2: I slept very well. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. I, I really slept extremely well in these places because...
0: You didn't find it unnerving?
2: No, I actually, you know, the fact that there, that there was no glass that the building was impenetrable I mean aside from someone coming in with like you know heavy artillery or something it it really does give you a sense of peace it felt like teenage sleep you know you're a teenager and you're just when you're out you're out oh absolutely you know yeah. your your parents couldn't wake you up that's kind of what what it's like sleeping down there mm-hmm. um so there is something comforting about being underground not to everyone. I know to some people this probably sounds terrifying, being, you know, 30 metres underground with a, a sealed door above you. But for many people, you know, it, it it's a bit like, like being back in the womb or something. Like you crawl into the earth and your life takes on a very different rhythm.
0: In the event of a nuclear attack people would have seconds to try and find shelter. How would they get to these bunkers that are often in such remote locations in time?
2: It's a great question. It's a question I ask people over and over again. And I never found a good answer, except that in the most extreme circumstances, people had paid for a security team to have an evacuation plan for them. You know, the fact of the matter is that most people in the world do not have somewhere to go. Do you remember the... False missile alert that people yeah. got in Hawaii in yes. 2018. Terrifying. All right, moving on now. Hawaii's emergency management
3: agency is under fire and now reportedly receiving death threats after Saturday's terrifying false alarm. People ran for their lives after an alert mistakenly warned residents and visitors of an
2: incoming ballistic missile. Terrifying. You know, you get this notification on your phone saying you've got 15 minutes to find shelter.
0: I'm texting my daughter at home saying,
2: I love you. If I die, I love you. I thought I could do something, and yet I felt totally helpless at the same time. So I'm sitting there just kind of bawling my eyes out. And what people realized is they had nowhere to go. They were stuffing their children in sewers. But if we turn to places like South Korea, Israel, places in Scandinavia, Switzerland, the government had a plan in place to evacuate people. And of course, you don't see these real estate markets emerging in the same way because uh, people don't have need for them.
0: Right. Okay. So yeah, in those countries, those facilities are still maintained or at least still present for the public. If I was to choose a country to give myself a decent chance of surviving, which would be best?
2: Switzerland would be your best bet. They've got bunkered space for 110% of the population there, which wow. is incredible. Yeah, I mean, they they can evacuate the entire population of the country, plus some people who happen to be visiting. Finland is relatively well prepared. Sweden has a ton of bunker space. So if, if you're thinking about, you know, a scenario like you have in Ukraine at the moment, then Having bunkered space is really important, and bunkers have saved tens of thousands of lives in Ukraine already.
0: Ukrainians finding shelter wherever they can. These people rushing to the subway. Thousands of people are seeking sanctuary inside train stations across the country. Others in makeshift underground bunkers.
2: That's something that's worth keeping in mind. It's not something we want to think about, but it is a reality.
0: Bradley, it sounds like there's quite an extensive network and an increase in interest in these bunkers in the US. But how about in the UK? Are many people here buying up bunkers?
2: There's an amazing um, real estate market that I've watched emerge in the UK in the past 10 years or so, where there were these small bunkers that were built during the Cold War. They were called um, Rural Observation Corps posts, ROC posts. In the event of a nuclear attack on Britain, what could a man like Bill do? If anything was
1: going to happen, I'd be on my way to this monitoring post, same as today. But there wouldn't be much time to take in the view.
2: The Royal Observer Corps man over 800 of these protected monitoring posts. Nowhere in Britain are you more than a few miles from one. Obviously, they were never used for their intended purposes. A lot of them fell into dereliction. And now they're popping up on the, on, the, on real estate websites. And people are paying... 25 35,000 pounds for an acre of land with a with an ROC post on it wow. and turning turning them into tiny homes or fixing up the bunkers and building a house on the top side and then having a place that they can escape to so it's something that we're seeing all over the world but it it's kind of it's interesting that it kind of refracts the social and political policies of the culture You know, in the US and the UK, these facilities were built for weapons, for elites. You know, they weren't built for the general public. And so these are now being sort of bought up and and retrofitted for a completely different purpose. This is the BBC uh,
1: studio.
0: Okay, so why would this be here?
1: prior to the bomb going off you would be all glued to your radios and so the Prime Minister would be able to broadcast uh, from here to you to tell you what to do.
0: Okay, so there are stacks and stacks of broadcast equipment in here. A huge radio desk, microphones, uh, a generator and then behind us I think (laughs) Mike has just switched on the light and there is a a mannequin of Margaret Thatcher there behind the microphone ready to make her broadcast to the nation to tell us basically what's going on. And so then would BBC engineers have had access to here? They'd have been Uh, some of the people who were saved, basically.
1: The equivalent of BBC Essex chaps would come down here. They would be manned by BBC Essex type.
0: Okay, so in the event of a nuclear war, working in radio or maybe now podcasting... uh, could be a good position to it be in.
1: Might give you a space down here, yeah.
0: Good to know. <laughs> Coming up, inside the minds of the preppers who are looking to the end of times. Bradley, you've spent time with people in several different countries who might refer to themselves as preppers. Those are people getting ready for the the end of the world, essentially. What sense do you get about why they're doing this?
2: Most people said that they're not concerned about existential threats because it's too easy to slip into nihilism. You know, if you start thinking about a global nuclear exchange, I mean, if you start going down that hole, it's just, you know, you fall into despair. And what Prepper's told me again and again is that prepping is about hope, that you have to have hope that there is a future. Otherwise, there's no point in prepping for it. Mm. Most of the preppers that I met who were not selling something <laughs> were quite rational people. They were just trying to use a kind of very critical eye to assess the state of society, of geopolitics, of the world. I found that although people were were often driven there by having very different political beliefs, like maybe, you know, they were extremely conservative or con- extremely liberal or extreme religious beliefs or extreme beliefs in civil defense, they would get to these communities and there would be this kind of weird moment of unity where I would have uh, an anarchist who was building a house out of hay bales and interested in going off grid and being self-sufficient, but who was very kind of distrustful of the the government and modern medicine, having a conversation with someone who was ex-military building out of concrete, stockpiling guns, and and they were sharing information. You know, I'll teach you how to use a weapon and you teach me how to build a solar panel. And these people were were meeting uh, amazingly in these um, off-grid bunker communities.
0: And I'm interested to know, in your years of research on this, spending time with people who are preparing for the worst eventualities, how has that made you reflect on the decisions that you make about your own future
2: i had been traveling around the world for for 3 years interviewing people on this topic and any good research changes you you know as you spend time with people and you absorb their thoughts and their words and their worlds inevitably you are affected by that so the seed was planted and then when the pandemic broke out i happened to be back home in southern california And I realized that it was a moment to put my theory into practice. So I moved out to the mountains in Southern California. I bought a quarter acre of land and uh, I live in a cabin in the forest. I've started growing food. I've got tons of tools. I'm learning how to build things. I've been doing electrical wiring. I'm building a shed right now. And it's so satisfying. It, it it does give me a sense that if things were to go wrong, I could manage it. I mean, not forever, but I can, I can get myself and my family through three weeks, and I would still have a hot shower, electricity, refrigeration, and food, everything I need to make it through a short period of time. I mean, a, a lot of my interviewees for the book, I'm sure, will be laughing at me as they hear this. At three weeks? Three weeks, sure. You know? <laughs> and oh, and you don't have a bunker and you don't have any guns. Good luck. I mean, I don't, I don't want to build a bunker. I'm not, I'm, not inter- I'm not interested in climbing underground. You know, the thing about the bunker is it's always a short-term solution. It's a, it's a bridge, or some preppers have described it to me as a, a a ship that moves you through time rather than space. You get into the right. ship and it takes you through three weeks, three months, three years, whatever is necessary. Then you emerge from the ship. In, you know back into the place you were mm. so that's a good short term solution, but you can't you can't live in the bunker what you need for long term solutions are places where you can live a sustainable healthy life above ground where you can live a self- sufficient life and it all depends upon cooperation we exist because of communal exertion right because we all came together to build sewer systems and water pipes and telecommunication systems. And if if we're able to get things going again, you're gonna need other people. So survivability really is about community, and that's why we're seeing so many of these new sorts of prepper communities emerging that are not based on the survival of the individual or the family, but of a kind of new tribe that they've built in these spaces. You can't buy your way out of these situations. Other people are your ticket out.
0: Bradley, thank you so much. This has really got me thinking a lot.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you to Bradley Garrett and to Mike Parrish. This episode was produced by Rose Rabiti and Natalie Ktena. The sound designer was Axel Cucoutier. And the executive producer was Elizabeth Kassin. We'll be back tomorrow.